KBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. It's good to have you all with us as we, we begin another week on Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. It's Monday, July 12th. And because it is a Monday, um, our friend Jim Galloway, former AJC political columnist, he wrote The Political Insider and covered politics for the paper for, uh, what, Jim, 30-plus years, I think, is a correct assessment of the amount of time you'd spent working on politics in Georgia? Oh, that'd be a rough, rough one. I, there were a few years on, in other areas, yeah, yeah, but a long time. Um, and we're so happy that Jim continues to be with us. And Jim, we should say just briefly that in addition to our mutual interest in politics, we both are guys who pay attention to the Tour de France. And yesterday was a big day for Americans to celebrate. Sepp Kuss from Durango, Colorado, became the first American to win a stage in the Tour de France since 2011, which I assume was a Lance Armstrong uh, victory back then. Uh, no, 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 it wasn't. It, wasn't? it was uh, Taylor, somebody or other, but, it, but Lance's oh. two victories came in the 90s. Oh my God, that's right. That would thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm just I'm older than I realize. <laughs> Jim, thank you for being with us for t- today's show. Tia Mitchell comes to us from Washington D.C., where she's the Washington reporter for the Atlanta Journal Constitution. How are you doing up there, uh, Tia? Are you living through terrible heat up there, the way so much of the Northeast Coast is? I feel like it's not too bad here yet, but knock on wood, you know, I really don't know what it's like to be outdoors in summer in D.C., so we'll see how it goes. Okay. Well, thank you for being here for Political Rewind. Sam Olins is back with us, former attorney general of the state of Georgia, before that the chairman of the Cobb County Commission. And Sam, I do think it's appropriate to mention briefly that last Thursday— was your birthday. A belated happy birthday to you, Sam Olins. How are you, Sam? Thank you, Bill. Pleasure to be here. Buddy Darden is back with us. Buddy, of course, served as a congressman, Democratic congressman for the 7th District of Georgia. And um, Buddy, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show as well. Well, thank you, Bill. It's great to be here with so many old friends again, and especially our former great Cobb County Commission Chairman, Sam Olins. He did a lot for us in Cobb County we're still benefiting from, so it's good to be here with all of you. Oh, uh, you, you can take, buddy. Go ahead, Sam. Thank you, my first cousin, buddy. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you can take Buddy Darden out of politics, but you can't take the politics out of Buddy Darden. <laughs> All right, let's get right to it. Uh, Jim, we're, we are going to talk about campaign finances, but before we do, a story that uh, popped up uh, today uh, reported by GPB News, our own organization, and in partnership with the AJC, uh, shed some light on one of the aspects of the New Georgia election law. Uh, it, and, and here's what, what a very detailed dive into absentee ballots has revealed from 2020. Jim, 56% of absentee ballots from Cobb, DeCab, Fulton, and Gwinnett were put into drop boxes. 
And 305,000 out of 540,000 absentee votes went to drop boxes, whereas across the rest of the state, um, and primarily and specifically and especially in uh, more uh, rural areas, less populated areas, the, the drop-off was dramatic. And of course, we know the new uh, law uh, limits the availability of drop boxes. Uh, so what does that tell us, Jim? Well, it tells you that uh, it tells you that Republicans uh, in the legislature knew what they were doing when they when they included this in SB two hundred two. Sixty two percent in DeKalb County. Sixty two percent of absentee ballots were returned in uh, by via drop boxes rather than by mail. In 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 my home com, uh, county of Cobb. Uh, along with Buddy and 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 Sam, it was sixty one percent. Now, now I, I, the one thing that we haven't seen yet is is if there's a, a racial breakdown available. Uh, but but what happened was the legislature now uh, the, the the drop boxes were instilled by by act of uh, uh, the state election board under the authority of the state election board. Uh, and in those four counties in uh, uh, Fulton DeKalb, I think Gwinnett and uh, uh, Clayton, I, I could be wrong on that one, uh, there were 111 drop boxes. Uh, the legislature, the, 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 the uh, SB202 reduces that to 23. Mm. So, so uh, that's, that's very, very significant. Uh, Tia, Republicans who passed SB202 would say that what they did do is for the first time made drop boxes a function of Georgia law. As Jim just pointed out, uh, this was something the Secretary of State's office implemented during the pandemic. So Republicans celebrate, say, look, we now have a law that mandates there be drop boxes. Of course, opponents say, yes, but now you have to have them inside of uh, election locations and you can only get into those locations during working hours. So it's going to limit the ability of people to use uh, drop boxes. Tia? Yeah, that's right. I mean, the way, yes, they put drop boxes in law so that they can be used on a permanent basis, but they did so in a way that is going to drastically reduce the use of drop boxes compared to what we saw back in um, last year. What stuck to me was in the AJC and Georgia Public Broadcasting Report, it says that 40% of drop box ballots were returned after the end of early voting, which is no longer allowed now. That's 40%. In addition, when we talked about, you know, the difference in rural areas where drop boxes were more spread out, the absentee ballot voters were putting them in the mail. That's why drop boxes weren't used as much. And so um, I think Republicans are, you know, figured, well, you know, if people can just use the mail, then they don't need drop boxes. But that also, to me, shows that more drop boxes, you know, a higher number, making them more convenient the way the metro Atlanta counties did, could also make them more, you know, accessible to people in rural areas. But instead, the Republican legislators went the opposite way so that now it's going to be less accessible in those metro Atlanta counties. Um, Sam Olins and Buddy Darden, I'd love to have both of you weigh in on this, but in addition to just the, uh, the, the data, which we've now understood uh, to be the case, it would be important to put this in the perspective of what the Supreme Court just did in terms of the Arizona uh, election laws. 
Uh, this is going to be one of the points of contention that's part of the lawsuits that have been filed against SB 202. Uh, but the Supreme Court, Sam, in its decision on Arizona, made it pretty clear that it's going to be very, very hard to prove discriminatory intent when it comes to new election laws. Sam? Yeah, I agree, Jim. Uh, I, I think a lot of what is um, present in those eight lawsuits is out the window after the Arizona case. Uh, drop boxes were in Georgia for the very first time. Uh, there's no constitutional right to drop boxes. Uh, while I happen to like to drop boxes and I used them last year, um, there's no federal court that is going to hold uh, in favor of the plaintiffs on that issue. Well, Bill, as you Buddy, might expect, Bill, as you might expect, I totally disagree with Sam here because I think what the state of Georgia has done is, by the use of the statute, committed a totally blatant act of voter suppression based upon what's happened. We never had a problem in Georgia with our voting laws until the Republicans lost the elections. <laughs> Then all of a sudden they want to rewrite and change those parts that didn't come out uh, in their favor. So under the law of what invidious discrimination, I personally think I personally think that the federal courts are going to take a very very skeptical look. Uh, yeah, hey, hey, uh, Sam, you're uh, and, and Buddy, both uh, both of you are are, are lawyers. Uh, if if my reading of the Alito decision, the, the, the Arizona decision, is correct, Alito, uh, Justice Alito, uh, said that that you know that incremental uh, differences in, uh, uh, in in the results of voting restrictions are no longer on the table, but 62 fifty six percent versus you know what would say maybe thirty percent. Uh, uh, over the use of uh, uh, drop boxes, that's it, might that be a little more than incremental? I don't think it's incremental. I think it's decisive. And under these very, very uncontrovertible facts, what we have is an attempt to, in my opinion, suppress the number of people voting and make it more difficult to vote. And we ought to be making it easier for people to vote. And to say that they are using... Uh, legalizing drop boxes for the first time in law, I think is just uh, pure fiction. So let's, let's, let's distinguish what we think is good policy and what we think is the law after the Arizona case. I happen to support drop boxes. I happen to think we should do anything and everything to make it easier for people to vote. So Buddy and I are on the exact same page there. The difference is the reading of the Arizona case. I think it's clear under the Alito decision that unless you can demonstrate that the change in the law was overtly to suppress African-American votes, it's a loser. And I don't think that evidence has been presented. Where I think you're going to have some interesting cases, Jim, uh, are frankly in those states that have a high Native American population because the numbers in a couple of those states is much, much more telling. The ability to go from some of those reservation lands to the closest polling precinct is, a, I think, a much, much better fact pattern 
such that if one wanted to choose where best to bring those types of um, legal arguments, it's not Georgia. It's where there's a, a high percentage of Native Americans that don't have e easy access to a voting place. I just want to point out um, one small difference in the federal government's lawsuit in Georgia, different from the Arizona lawsuit, is that the Justice Department is saying that Georgia's Senate Bill 202 had um, the intent of the law was to discriminate. Whereas, you know, we saw in the Alito um, decision in the Arizona case, he's saying the outcomes are too incremental for us to strike down the law. Um, so it's a little bit of a different argument, not saying they'll succeed, but we can't um, apply it too we can't apply the Arizona ruling too flatly because, again, they're taking a slightly different approach for the Florida, Florida, the Georgia case. So I'm obviously not a lawyer on this panel, uh, Buddy and Sam, but Buddy, um, let's be clear about this notion of incremental in the, the use of that language in the Alito ruling in Arizona, because I believe what that also means is that he is now suggesting, Buddy, that Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which was the one remaining uh, uh, part of that, the voting rights law that gave states the right to challenge, or individuals rather, the right to challenge new election laws passed by states, that it is no, you now have to prove a disproportionate impact on minority communities. It, it, in other words, if, if minorities are affected by a new voting law, if it's not uh, decisively uh, contrary to the, the, the disinterests of those minorities compared to the rest of the voting population, Alito says Section 2 no longer applies. Have I got that right? To a certain extent. However, at the same time, you've got, you've got to realize that, as Tia said, the intent the intent of what the legislature do, is doing is very clear, as evidenced by the other bills that were introduced but didn't pass. So in my view, the evidence here, and this will be evidence control, appears to be overwhelming. And this is something that the courts will have to consider from the trial level all the way, all the way up. So the factual findings, I think, will be very important here. Sam? Well, I just don't. I think there's a dearth of factual evidence. That's my, my area of disagreement. Uh, you know, as I've stated numerous times on your show, I disagreed with uh, a lot of the bills. But this isn't an issue of whether you agree or disagree. This is an issue of whether it's constitutional. So, Jim, let's we move on beyond this. But before we do, one final note. The study by GPB and the AJC... Uh, makes it clear whatever happens to that uh, that law as it moves forward in the courts, uh, that when you've got 60-plus percent of DeKalb voters, for instance, putting their absentee ballots in drop boxes, we may not have data to prove it, but we certainly are looking at the, the, the high probability that this is having, ha going to have an impact primarily on uh, African-American voters. Is that a fair at least generalization and assumption without having the data, 60-plus percent, Jim. 
Well, just, just given that, just given the demogra- demographic shifts in in Metro right. Atlanta alone would would argue right. would argue for that. So, so, and it's right. it's going to take. You're already you're already hearing Democrats saying that that it's it's going to take one massive ed- re- ed- education program to uh, to to get people to the polls or get their absentee ballots to the to the right spot at the right time. All right, um, we'll keep uh, watching that story as it unfolds. But congratulations to the team at uh, both our place and at the AJC who were able to drill down into voter data to get that information. Uh, So let's move forward. Um, Last week, we played for you the digital kickoff of uh, Brian Kemp's reelection campaign, the commercial that he uh, released uh, and put on the air. Uh, And on the weekend... He went down to Perry, where he uh, formally announced in front of a crowd of supporters. Uh, Sam Burmistoz, why don't we listen to the first uh, soundbite uh, from his speech down in Perry? Well, we realize what happened in the 2020 election. But we also realize that in 2020, our General Assembly in the state of Georgia that got elected passed Senate Bill 202 because we kept strong majorities because we campaigned on all these promises, teacher pay raises, a great economy in our state. We fought hard to protect lives and livelihoods. We have stood with our law enforcement, and we have stood up to make sure that we continue to have secure, accessible, fair elections in our state, and that it is easy to vote and hard to cheat in Georgia, and that is worth fighting for. Tia, um, we heard him sort of... uh tick off some of the issues that he will be uh, using in his campaign. But of course, it's particularly noteworthy that he showcases the work that he and Republicans in the state legislature did on the election law. And we're going to hear this refrain, making it easy to vote, but hard to cheat over and over again. And I mention that particularly because it is, I think the Kemp campaign sees it as their path back to winning over those disaffected Trump supporters who felt that Kemp uh, cheated them out of uh, getting uh, uh, the election here overturned. Yes? Yes, I think he thinks that. I don't know if that's really the case. I mean, since that law has been passed and he signed it quickly and said all the right things, he was still booed at the convention. He still... um, gets critical messages that uh, former President Trump emails out to his followers. Um, So I don't think he'll fully ever be back in Trump's good graces, but I think it also just kind of depends on whether Vernon Jones crashes and burns, you know, and leaves Trump with no other choice but to get behind um, Kemp. but I think it's also going to make it really hard in the general election. Again, we don't really – we assume that Stacey Abrams is going to be who Brian Kemp faces in the general election. But it's going to be really hard for Brian Kemp to, you know, moderate himself in the general election because he's digging so in on these this line of messaging that speaks to Trump and Trump supporters. Yeah, um, it, it, it's the, the, it's getting interesting. I mean, uh, Brian Kemp uh, will stay away from the words Donald Trump uh, because he doesn't want to he doesn't want to advertise that split. 
but he's doing the right thing, it, it, just strategically in in holding Abrams out there as a as a unifying kind of uh, 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 enemy figure or opposing opposing figure. Uh, what I'm finding interesting ab- about this is that, uh, I mean. I think what Vernon Jones put up maybe says he pulled in maybe six hundred and fifty thousand uh, dollars in the latest reporting period, uh, maybe, maybe largely because of that appear that that fundraiser with with Rudy Giuliani. That's not that's not a a, a big uh, a, a big uh, problem for Kemp. I think I think the, the 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 more serious problem for Kemp would come if uh, Donald Trump is indeed successful in urging Herschel Walker. Into the U.S. Senate contest, because then you got a bona fide Trump ticket in the GOP primary, and and that that might do some damage. So wait, I want to make sure. I want Sam Olins to weigh in, but before I you you talk, Sam, you're suggesting, Jim, that the only if if let's say that that um, uh, the only opponent to uh, uh, Brian Kemp in the primary is Vernon Jones, who doesn't seem to have much strength right now. You're saying if Herschel Walker joins the Senate race, that would be a Trump if, ticket that could help. If, you, help if you've the, got uh, it, uh, right, if you've got if you've got Herschel Walker, uh, and let's say Vernon Jones, but also Jody Heiss. Oh, okay. Right. So you've got a you've got a you've you've got a you've got a you you've got a certain dynamism there that could that could okay. be harmful so, to to Kemp. Sam, how do you see this uh, uh, primary campaign shaping up for Republicans? Well, I think in general it's going to be a very good primary for um, those candidates that have Trump's overt support. Uh, I don't frankly view Vernon Jones as a um, big threat because Vernon has a really long record. Uh, and I haven't seen the president jump to help him. Uh, similar to Jim's comment, I also, frankly, don't see his uh, fundraising total impressive. I mean, the easiest quarter to raise a lot of money is the first quarter, not the second or the third quarter. And uh, you know, I think the folks that are supporting Vernon uh, are doing so uh, – Solely because he's not Brian Kent and, and and Vernon is not the candidate that will lead them to victory. I, I think Brian Kemp needs to be more concerned about um, the general election and whether those voters that support Vernon now will support him in November. And I think that's where the where the trouble uh, kicks in. But you know, clearly. Um, uh, you know, and, and I think we haven't touched base on this yet, but let's face it, there's a lot of Republicans that aren't jumping to support Herschel Walker just because Kemp wants Herschel Walker. Uh, there's a lot of folks that are going to support uh, the other Republican candidates in the U.S. Senate race. Buddy, well, jump Bill, in. just to be candid, I do not understand Republican politics. It mystifies me. And uh, I hear... Brian Kemp down there preaching to the choir uh, down in down in Perry, when in my opinion his message ought to be an inclusive one, as Sam suggests, to reach out to the entire population. I remember some some of Nathan Deal's folks used to tell me that what you do is is you run to the right and you govern from the middle, and I think Brian Kemp's real problem is 
Uh, he can't be the official foul. He doesn't know whether he's for Trump or against Trump. And and I think it's just if I were him, I'd just tell uh, you know Trump, you know, go go fly a kite, and that he was going to run his run his own election. But unfortunately, unfortunately, I think he's too afraid of the base base to do that. But a base election in the Republican Party will not win the general election. So I think that's the dilemma he faces today. Yeah, and that's I think, you know, listening to Sam and Sam, you're talking about, you know, Republicans, the establishment, the folks with money. And I think you're right. They're not necessarily eager to get behind a Vernon Jones or a Herschel Walker. But guess who is those Trump voters? And we know Trump is still the leader of the party. Even, you know, I think there's still a lot of, you know, folks don't want to accept that. But it's true. And so there are a lot of rank-and-file regular people who vote Republican, and they're waiting for Donald Trump to give them the sign. And if Donald Trump doesn't give them the sign that it's Brian Kemp, I'm not saying Vernon Jones can win, but that's going to be a problem for Brian Kemp, as others have noted, not just in the primary but also in the general. If He can't bring those Trump supporters along. And saying for, yeah. to Jim's point, saying for down the ballot. Jim, I got to get to a break, but before I do, uh, in talking about Kemp having to pivot for a general election campaign, having the challenge of making sure that he can send the right messages out to the people who are Trump supporters and are on the fence, unsure about Brian Kemp, he's going to have to pivot. You've already made that clear, all of you. And it does seem, Jim, as though he's got a ready-made issue that has the potential to uh, be somewhat persuasive with those independent voters, those suburban voters who came over to Democrats in 2020. And that's the entire issue of law and order. The more that we see violent crime in Atlanta kick up and people across metro Atlanta worry about that, Kemp already gets it and he talked about it in his speech. He sees that as a possible way to do better with a a general election uh, electorate, right? Right. And, and look, he, he's going to be assisted in this because you're going to have uh, this fall, you're going to have a, a, a race for to become mayor of Atlanta. Kasim Reed has yep. already uh, identified that issue as a as a as as his ticket back. Uh, there will be a first vote and then there'll be a runoff in, in December. And then you're going to have the, the then you, it'll be open season on uh, with with the legislature coming back. I would imagine you're going to have uh, uh, anti-crime bills. uh uh, popping up like like poppies. Okay, I got to get to our first break of the show. We got a lot more to talk about. We'll be back with our panel in just a moment. Buddy Darden, Sam Olins, Tia Mitchell, Jim Galloway, all with me today for political rewind. <clears throat> Ooh, excuse me, uh, Sam. Real quickly, Olins, <clears throat> I, I apologize. Um, you already mentioned the fact that there are a lot of Republicans out there who aren't eager to jump on the Herschel Walker for Senate bandwagon. And, in fact, uh, one of the most significant of those is uh, former Governor Nathan Deal, who has now endorsed Gary Black, the one Republican who, of, of merit, uh, of, of who's well-known, who has jumped into the uh, primary race that uh, to, to win the right to take on uh, Raphael Warnock in the fall. You, you're not surprised that Nathan Deal would support Gary Black, but I guess we have to say Gary Black wins 
uh, a, a bit of a prize here for being so willing to jump in regardless of Her- Herschel Walker. Sam? Look, I think there's a lot of Republicans who dislike the fact that, first of all, Herschel hasn't lived here in decades. And secondly, he still isn't here. So, you know, how many months are you going to tease Republicans that you're going to follow the former president and enter the race, but you're still living in Texas? And I think that rubs many Republicans the wrong way. You're either all in or you're not. And if you uh, take that, at the same time that you look at Senator Warnock's amazing numbers, where he raised more than anyone else the last quarter, uh, you, you have to come to the decision that Senator Warnock is in really strong position. And uh, the Republicans are not going to take back that seat if they're not all hands on deck fully on board with their nominee. And each month that goes by that Herschel plays the stance is a month that isn't helpful to the Georgia Republican Party. Tia, you're on mute. I just have a question for you, Sam. Um, What do you think this means for Buddy Carter? Because he's kind of the prominent name who said he was waiting for Herschel Walker. So do you think this kind of edges Buddy Carter out now? You know, each month that this goes on, it doesn't help Buddy. And and, and let me remind folks, um, congressmen are really well-known in their district. That doesn't mean they're well-known in the state of Georgia. Someone like Gary, who has campaigned and won statewide several times, is in a much stronger position than a congressman who's known in his home turf. So for someone like Buddy Carter... These are months that he really needs to be traveling throughout the state of Georgia. You know, Buddy Darden, there's a way in which, I mean, I I recognize the comparison isn't precise, but there's an interesting way in which the question about whether Herschel Walker is going to jump into the race, the fact that some Republicans are holding back, waiting for that decision, and the fact that Raphael Warnock, as Sam Oldens just pointed out, he raised $7 million in the last reporting period, Raphael Warnock did. There's something sort of reminiscent of the Doug Collins-Kelly Leffler battle uh, for the Senate, which led to the runoff that Raphael Warnock won. And you've got a sort of a similar dynamic going on right now where Raphael Warnock is out there skating, raising huge amounts of money, getting his message out, and Republicans are still kind of frozen in place, buddy. Uh, yes, I do see a comparison, no question about it. But I also see another comparison that Sam Olin's uh, quite properly raised, and that is congressmen are well-known in their own district, but nobody knows who they are anywhere else. I found that out a few times when I went around around the state. And look what happened to Jack Kingston. I thought Jack Kingston would have been a shoe-in. He had been in, in the Congress for a number of terms, uh, almost 20 years, and then he gets out there and nobody knows, nobody knows who Jack Kingston is except outside uh, in his own in his own congressional district. So yes, that is uh, one off is, is making hay, as they say, while the sun shines, and uh, all these Republicans are sitting around twiddling their thumbs, uh, hoping some that Herschel will, will get in, others hoping that he w- won't say he'll get in. And I think I think Buddy Carter. Uh, is a non-entity as far as the race goes. And I think the real real uh, 
Republican that we ought to fear as Democrats would be Gary Gary Black. Of course, I'm prejudiced. I've known him 40 years, and, and I kind of like folks who pay their dues. And I think that uh, Gary Black would be a formidable candidate for Senator Warnock. You know, you know, Bill. I, I will say that there's one advantage into this uh, this uh, kind of uh, will he, won't he uh, uh, discussion over Herschel Walker, and that is without him in the race, without a solid field, you don't have that situation that you had uh, in 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 2020 in in the jungle primary for the U.S. Senate. You don't have you don't have uh, Republicans being pressed to go further and further and further right until they can't uh, until they can't uh, uh, pivot back to the center. Okay, that's a really important point. Thank you for making it. All right, let me let, let's shift just a little bit because we have two uh, people on our panel who have run many election campaigns and know what fundraising is all about, how difficult it is, how much money you need to win a race. Um, Sam Olins and then Buddy, we we know that um, Brian Kemp has $12 million that he's raised, $9 million still in the bank. As we pointed out a minute ago, Raphael Warnock has raised $7 million in just the last quarter alone. Um, we know that Stacey Abrams' uh, 501c4, which means it's not campaign money, nevertheless, it's, it's, it's money that her organization, Fair Fight, is right, has raised $100 million since she lost in 2016. Um, and to put a final note in here, we now have this law which allows leaders in the General Assembly, the Speaker of the House, the Governor, to raise money during a legislative session, which they can use themselves or, or distribute to legislators. Sam, and then, buddy, when you look at what it takes financially to run a race today, what, what are your thoughts compared to when you were each racing, you running, you for Attorney General, uh, Sam, and then, buddy, back when you were running for Congress? Sam? So in, in 2014, which was when I ran for re-election, it cost about six hundred fifty thousand dollars a week for TV ads. So I'm assuming that today that's uh, approximately a million dollars a week for statewide TV. So in a primary, forget the runoff. In a primary, you got to be on TV four or five weeks. So that's four or five million dollars. That doesn't include the other costs of your campaign. And let's face it, the big thing that I didn't deal with, because it was very, very new in 2014, was all those ads um, on the Internet, such that when you go to read a Washington Post article, there's four ads within that article that someone paid for wanting you to, to click on that that ad. You know, when, when I last ran, the only ads were pretty much Facebook. So, you know, God knows what those ads cost, and those ads are important on, on social media and on uh, new services. So if you assume it's more like 1.3, 1.4 million a week statewide, uh, very few of these candidates have that ability to raise that kind of money. Yeah. And, Buddy, you, of course, were at running during an era much earlier than the tw last uh, uh, statewide race that Sam Olins was in when you ran your last congressional campaign uh, in the 90s. 
Absolutely. But let me go back very briefly as a political dinosaur to tell you how it used to be. Uh, I ran in 1983 a jungle primary and a runoff three weeks later, and uh, I went into the election day with having spent $108,000. Now, it turns out that all the checks that were supposed to be in the mail came since I won, and so I ended up with about 150. But uh, in the last congressional election I ran when I was defeated, uh, I spent about 750 and then an unsuccessful primary even back in Back in, uh, I believe it was 2002, uh, I spent over a million. So the money situation is just totally out of control. And in my view, Bill, you've heard me say this before, most political money is wasted. It's uh, spent on uh, multiple consultants, multiple products. Uh, Sam Nunn told me one time, uh, I was asking him about the polls in his election. He says, I have no idea how I was doing because we didn't have enough money to do a poll. And so uh, where there's money, uh, there's nature of hordes of vacuum, and that's go- it's going to be spent. But what I'm suggesting is that I think we need a complete overhaul. I, I think independent expenditures, for example, are, are totally out of-, out of control, and I don't see any solution to it other than some kind of constitutional amendment, and I really don't think that has much of a chance of passing. I think one thing does happen, though, and I've noticed this in this last year, is that once you get so much money, you reach the point of diminishing returns, and it becomes evident that uh, when every other commercial uh, is repeating itself, then you know that, uh, that it's not doing any good. I wish I had a solution to say except that money's out of control, and and uh, I don't see any, any solution for it in the uh, immediate future. Uh, Tia, let me uh, bring you in because, of course, efforts in Congress to try to do something about spending are getting virtually uh, nowhere, uh, uh, victimized by the partisanship uh, up in Congress. And and I should also point out, you've got a front row seat to watch Raphael Warnock and and how he's done in terms of uh, trying to position himself for re-election. Yeah, we should note that that sweeping voting and election bill that Democrats have drafted, the For the People Act, it's its formal title, but it has some campaign finance reform in it, among other things. Um, It uh, focuses more on dark money and things like that, but there is some campaign finance reform in there. We again know that, you know, in the Senate, the For the People Act has been blocked by the filibuster for even being debated in the Senate. Um, And, of course, there are always talks about doing more, but like Buddy said, it's just highly unlikely because, quite frankly, members of both parties benefit from all this money in politics. Um, I think what what also Raphael Warnock has going for him right now is he came to the Senate and did exactly what he said. You know, it's going to be really hard. Um, You know, it was hard for Republicans to paint him as a liberal, socialist, communist, Raphael Warnock, the way Kelly Leffler tried to. But that's going to be even harder now that he's, you know, had a, you know, some several months. And by the time the election comes around, almost two years in the Senate, and they'll be able to look at his record and see what he's done. And, And again, he's a Democrat. He's partisan. But um, he's far from a socialist, you know, so I think that's going to also make him harder to beat. So two two things. One, uh, the California AG case that was decided the same day as the Arizona case, once again, is a message from the Supreme Court that 
soft, hard, dark, whatever money you want to call it, is going to find a hard time being held constitutional in the U.S. Supreme Court. So some of these voting bills may reference campaign finance reform, but they have a hard time getting through the U.S. Supreme Court. Secondly, I agree with a lot of what Buddy said about the cost of campaigns and the use of of how campaigns are run. But I would mention that the the one exception really was Senator Warnock. Uh, That darn dog got Senator Warnock more (laughs) votes than I could think of. And when you uh, different from everyone else who uses every campaign ad to attack mercilessly, whether it's factual or not, and you got the senator with that dog licking you on the face, that was a genius <laughs> consultant. And, and I would be astounded if Senator Warnock didn't have that dog back next year for every commercial. Uh, I really, what a, what a wonderful observation. Jim, I got to get to break before dog. I It wasn't even his dog. I never knew that, buddy. It may, it may be now. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, before we get to a break, Jim, real quickly, one of the things we also have to say about the extraordinary sums of money that, um, that elect- officials, candidates rather, have to come up with to run has added to the partisan divide in the country because one of the ways you raise a ton of dough, especially if you're a member of Congress, an incumbent or a challenger up there, is to demonize the opponent, to get grab hold of the biggest hot-button issues of the moment, and to promote them to the people who you want to send you money. So it's had an enormous impact on the toxicity of politics in Washington, Jim. Yeah, yeah. Uh, look, one one of the big changes that that have occurred over over my span as a journalist here is is just the 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 shift away from raising money. The, the emphasis used to be on raising all local money. It was poison to, to take money from New York or California. Uh, look, that's that's completely changed now. Stacey Abrams had a, a big big hand in changing that. The inner, uh, so did John Ossoff. But look at what Marjorie Taylor Greene is doing right now. She she is mm. she is she is trying to 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 uh, uh, have an event in Orange County, California. She's getting money from all over the country. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's do this. Let's get to our final break. The show. We'll be back with more on political rewind. <laughs> Jim Galloway, I don't want to let the show pass without pointing out that we do have two special legislative elections to uh, fill seats that are vacant uh, 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 tomorrow. And uh, one of them up your way in Cobb County, District 34, to replace Burt Reeves, is uh, does uh, uh, pit a Democrat, uh, Priscilla Smith, against a Republican, Devin Sebaugh. And there are people, you know, it's interesting that here's a special legislative seat election and Stacey Abrams' fair fight is up there working hard to get the Democrat elected. You've got uh, uh, Kelly Leffler's new organization working hard for uh, Devin Sebaugh. What kind of test is this of where Cobb County is heading in as we uh, move toward legislative elections uh, next year? Uh, I I don't think it's 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 a it's a big harbinger. 
Uh, number one, you're talking about a special election in in the middle of July, uh, and and yes, people are still staying home a little bit, but not as much as they were last year. Uh, you have people. You have people out. Uh, just, I mean, the the first round of voting showed uh, a, a a very substantial. I think some somewhere in the sixty percent range uh, of of votes cast for Republicans in the contest. Uh, unless there's something, uh, unless the Abrams group has something very, very, uh, very intense and very quiet going on, uh, I I don't think you're going to. See, I don't think the Democrat has much of a chance in this one. Sam, you're you're a Cobb County guy. What do you see up there? And Buddy, you too. So both of you weigh in. No, I, I agree with uh, with Jim. I mean, Devin got forty seven percent of the vote, and I expect that he wins tomorrow. I kind of Sam, agree. With, I mean, but Buddy, I kind of agree with, with uh, what Jim said. The numbers the numbers favor the Republican, and plus, quite candidly, um, Republicans have a better candidate this time. Uh, He's got very deep community roots, uh, stronger than the other other candidate. I know them. I know them both. I don't live in that district, and so of course I wouldn't be be voting. But uh, it would it would be um, an extraordinary thing if the Democrat would win. I just don't expect that to happen. Okay, um, thank you for that, uh, uh, Tia. We've talked a lot lately about Marjorie Taylor Greene on this show, and and we always do it somewhat apprehensively because we don't want to give her more attention than maybe some people think she should get. But the fact of the matter is, some of her statements lately, you really do have to air them out and let people see where she stands. It is interesting, Tia, that an event center in California, which had uh, been booked to host one of her America First rallies— uh, which he's making a, a tour around the country to do with Matt Gates has uh, now canceled them. So we don't want them here. They haven't said specifically anything about uh, the Repub- the right-wing politics, the extremist politics, but they've said we just don't want to get in the middle of that sort of thing, Tia. Right. And, you know, um, Gates and Green are still saying they're coming to Orange County. They're looking for a new venue now. But I think it goes to show you that, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene continues to say things that um, on their face at least use anti-Semitic imagery. Now, she has claimed that, claimed ignorance, claimed uh, that she regrets it, um, claimed that her words are being taken out of context, but then she keeps doing it. And those things get national headlines. So I think the owner of this venue, which is a private venue, you know, uh, we talk a lot about um, letting private businesses be able to um, not have to uh, cater to the clientele they don't want to. So this is an example of a private business taking that stance and saying we'd rather not um, let Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates use our facility. Okay, thank you for that. I want to close on a really positive note, if we can. Uh, we all know, I think, uh, by now that last week, Jimmy and Rosalind Carter celebrated their 75th wedding anniversary, um, and they had a big party down in Plains over the weekend. Bill and Hillary Clinton were there. Uh, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi was there. Tricia Yearwood, I think, was part of that event. And, and, and Carter didn't do many interviews around this, but he did do one for ABC News. And I want to play you just one of the things that Carter said about why that marriage has lasted so long. That was the most important thing in my life. It was 
It was happy and joyful, and obviously long-lasting. Yeah. Every night, we try to make sure we, we are completely reconciled from all the arguments during the day okay. uh, when we go to bed. For 75 years of marriage, we've always grown deeper in our love for one another. I think that's a kind of extraordinary thing that happened to very many couples, but it, it certainly happened to us. That is just remarkable. By the way, Andrew Young has said the same thing about his marriage, uh, that he and Jean never would go to bed fighting with one another. They would tr try to resolve uh, their differences. Buddy Darden, uh, Rosalind Carter has played an enormously uh, important role uh, in his political, Carter's political life as well as personal life. But you know, and Sam Olins knows, it's not easy to be a political spouse. No, it's not. In fact, my wife uh, had perfect training, though, because her dad was a Methodist minister and uh, came up through the ranks to the uh, highest levels. So uh, she understands, and she was, I think, the quintessential political wife. She did a wonderful job, and we will have been married next February 54 years. And the key to it is always <laughs> admitting uh, you're wrong, even though you might not be. <laughs> Sam Bolins, you. So we're babes in the woods. Uh, we're only married 36 years. Um, <laughs> clearly, to be the spouse of an elected official, you have to be a saint. Uh, and uh, my wife uh, certainly, um, you know, merits that. Um, you know, but what I wanted to frankly add is uh, Rosalind's been really. Uh, active as a former first lady and she's done a lot in particular with mental health causes and deserves an awful lot of credit for her initiatives and they really have been a team it hasn't just been president carter rosalind's done quite a lot on her own absolutely uh, jim a real quick comment from you on that and then we're completely out of time uh, well, you mentioned Jean Young. She was just a just a very fierce defender of of Andy Young when 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 he was in public office. But also, let me point Shirley Miller. Shirley, Shirley Miller was the one who oh, took those sharp good. edges off Zell Miller. Yes. She was the one. She was a big secret to his success. <laughs> yeah, not easy to take the sharp edges off of Zell. That's for sure. Uh, 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 Jim Galloway, Sam Olins, Buddy Darden, Tia Mitchell. Thank you all for today's show. And I just want to add, Jim, Sam, and Buddy. I know all three of your spouses, and you all hit the jackpot when it came to uh, wives who put up with your lives, much of what you did in your lives and careers over the years. Uh, Tia Mitchell, again, thank you for joining us from Washington. Sam Olins, Buddy Darden, Jim Galloway. We're out of time for today's show. Amelia Brock, Sam Burmistaz, Jesse Neiswanger, thank you for your work on the show today as every day. I'm Bill Nygut. We're back with a new show again tomorrow. In the meantime, take care. Stay healthy. Uh, think about wearing a mask when you might need to. And maybe you should get a vaccine. How about that? At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. 
NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.